So we are looking at Romans chapter 11 and our reading verse 25 down to the end. Uh, this evening we're focused on verses 25 to 32, but we're reading to the end. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion and He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now, uh, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them to all disobedience, that He might have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become His counselor? Or who has first given to Him and it should be repaid to Him? For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. God's holy word in errant endures forever. May he bless it. Well, as we've been learning and seeing through chapters 9 to 11, the doctrine of election is clearly, uh, in uh, maybe not so clearly in some minds, but clearly uh, a focus of all that Paul is dealing with when it concerns the salvation uh, of Gentiles and Jews alike. We know the doctrine of election is one of those testy doctrines in the visible church. That there is a a lot of people hard pressed to accept and receive it. But for those of us who have, we also know it's challenging. And sometimes uh, when we uh, meditate on God's electing graces... We, we understand and we wrestle with some of the mysteries and concerns that rise from it. And I, I, want, to, I want you to just take your mind there for a moment. When, when you meditate on God's electing grace, and what we mean by that is how God from eternity past elected, chose in the Lord Jesus some of fallen humanity And as our Shorter Catechism, question 20, uh, emphasizes, He entered into that covenant of grace to save them from their sins through the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's God choosing unto salvation sinners from before the foundation of the world. Now, when you meditate on God's electing grace, what are the mysteries and concerns 
about such doctrine. Maybe you haven't meditated on it, and so you don't have mysteries or concerns. But in the life of the church, there have been mysteries and concerns. And once I lay them before you, you're going to say, yeah, I've heard about that, I've heard about that, I, I've heard them say these things. Mysteries and concerns. One of the big ones is this whole debate between infra and supra lapsarianism. And uh, as I've said before, if you don't understand those words, good, don't worry about it. Uh, those are the secret things that belong to God. And I don't know why theologians can't simply look to Deuteronomy 29, 29 and say, God has not revealed to us the ordering and the placement of His electing graces from eternity past. He has revealed to us that He has elected from eternity past. But the ordering of them is not ours to know. But... Those are the mysteries that some theologians delve into and think that they're important. Um, I think they're wrong. <laughs> but there's others. And, and it, sort of, it sort of flows from, uh, from understanding the doctrine of election. If that's the case, then God's the author of sin. And then concerns that flow from that. Well, what about our free will to choose God? Or doesn't that make God seem cruel and loveless? Doesn't that make God unfair? And that He elects some and reprobates others. And you know, Scripture tells us things that, that meet a lot of those mysteries and concerns simply to say, you, if you have these thoughts and concerns, you show you really don't understand who God is. <laughs> because God is not the author of sin. He says that. <laughs> God has not, in this sense, destroyed our free will. Sin has. <laughs> You know, the Scripture presents answers to all of those questions and mysteries and concerns. And yet, they still rise up when it comes to the doctrine of election. I lay that all before you because here in this chapter, and here in chapters 9 to 11, Paul sets for us mysteries and concerns about election. But they're nothing like what I've just laid before you. <laughs> he has a great mystery. And it concerns Israel. That if Israel is God's chosen people, then why have so few believed? Why have they almost wholesale outrightly rejected Christ? When they, in the whole of their history and their calling in Abraham, have been given all of the types and shadows and promises, and throughout their history to the coming of Christ, were waiting for and expecting the Messiah. And when He came, they rejected Him. Now, isn't that a mystery? What about the Jewish people? And, and again, you look at the beginning of each of these chapters. This is not just something that he's sitting back and quietly meditating and trying to think through. It's a burden of his heart. 
so many souls that ought to have believed and are dead in their sins and trespasses, rejecting the only one who is able to save them. You go to verse 2 and 3. He says, I, of chapter 9. Verses 2 and 3, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. I, if I could, I, I wish that I was accursed and they were saved instead. Chapter 10, my, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Bring your salvation to them. And then, You get to chapter 11 and he says it again. Has God cast away His people? There's His concern. His concern is for the salvation of those lost and dead in their sins. Has God's promises to Israel failed? Has human unbelief defeated God's saving grace? Why for 2,000 years has the church been predominantly made up of Gentiles coming to faith. And as Paul is meditating upon it, the Spirit brings it out, reveals it through his words here, that the answer to this mystery is that unimaginable grace is waiting to be poured out on Israel. That God is not one to make promises and set them aside. But He is waiting in His time, in His manner, to fulfill what He has promised. And you see that in this chapter, we've been realizing that, that God has grace waiting to meet Israel. Verse 12, If their fall is riches for the world, their failure, riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. Don't you think that the God who has said that my grace is greater is not yet waiting to pour it out upon those whom He covenanted in Abraham to save. Verse 15 of chapter 11, if they're being cast away, is is showing the reconciling of the world to God in Christ, then how much more will their acceptance be but life? You see, he, He has hope in election. It's a mystery about who is elected, who has salvation brought to them. But when we think about this mystery, it doesn't translate into doom and gloom and accusations against God. It translates into hope of the marvelous grace of God that will be poured out on these people. Do we labor in such thoughts when it comes to the doctrine of election? Or do we just get into those battles with one another about whether it's right or wrong? And and why so many people rip out Romans 9, 10, and 11 and Ephesians chapter 1 from their Bibles. Because it's just too frightening of a doctrine to concern ourselves with. It's meant to generate hope in the grace of God that, hey, do you know why the church is still here today? Because there are elect to be saved. (laughs) 
God has a work of salvation yet to be accomplished in the lives of people in this world and in the life of Israel. Verse 24 saying that same point. If you, a wild branch by nature, you as Gentiles who did not have any inkling of the promises and shadows and types of Christ given to you, if you by uh, a wild branch by nature were grafted into the olive tree, how much more Israel? <laughs> Do you not think that God can, cannot graft them back into this olive tree? Of course He can. Do you believe that He will? And Paul says, I do. Because God has promised. And, and Paul has such confidence and hope in the doctrine of election because he sees it as the grace of God. God's grace to an unworthy sinner. And what is Paul? What has Paul already taught us? The greatest principle of God's grace. What is it? What would you say it is? The greatest principle of God's grace. Romans 5, verse 20 and 21. Where sin abounded, grace abounded more. That's God's grace. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We probably don't think that's the greatest principle, but it is. In the sense of God's grace is abounding to the chief of sinners. And we need to understand that. Anytime we approach the doctrine of election, understanding that this is grace meeting the chief of sinners and looking at ourselves, if we don't grasp this great principle that where sin has abounded in my own life, grace has much more, then we will be what Paul considers to be the greatest concern in this chapter about wrong thinking on the doctrine of election. And it comes out here. What do you think his greatest concern? Both for the, for the Gentiles, but for, for anyone, whether Jew or Gentile. What is his greatest concern about our approach to election? Well, you see it in verse 18, in verse 20, and again here in verse 25. That we will boast that we were somehow better than the Jews. Verse 18. That we will become haughty and lack the fear of the Lord and His sovereignty in election. Verse verse 20. And in verse 25, he, he brings it out again. That we will become conceited and really show an ignorance of God's saving grace. That's his concern. And do you know how? And, and this is the thing, because these chapters, 9, 10, and 11, are all about what is fueling our zeal for evangelism. It wouldn't be the 
primary, I wouldn't say it's, it, it's all the things, but he's laying before us one of the things that fuels our zeal for evangelism. And that is knowing that God's elect are yet out there. They're not known to us. They're known to God. But He has given to us the ministry of the gospel in preaching as the means by which He will call them forth and draw them into His kingdom. And that's why we go out. That's why we serve the gospel. That's why as the church we understand who we are as light and salt in this generation. It's not that we're responsible in the sense of those who are saved or not saved. We're responsible to do what we have been called to do and that is to go forth witness for Christ. To bring that testimony of God's uh, uh, gospel to the world around us. And He will call forth His people. He will bring them to faith. Do you know what is, as Paul brings it out, do you know what is the greatest dampener on on that, that work of the church? It's when we begin to boast when, when pride wells up within us and we become haughty and lose our fear of God and understanding of His sovereignty, when we become ignorant of His grace and it, it creates this conceit in us. That's His concern. And He warns the Gentiles, don't think that you are in any way somehow better than the Jews. And that's in response to that concern. He lays it out for us in verses 24 and 25. I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. This mystery of why so few Jews have yet to respond in faith to Christ. So that you don't become wise in your own opinion. That is, so that you don't become conceited and somehow think, that you had a better intelligence, a grasp, or perhaps even in your own life somehow meriting God's grace. Because God still has a plan. He's going to see, as verse 26, that all Israel shall be saved. Now we may not fully understand that phrase. We're hopefully going to understand it better. But that's His response. All Israel will be saved. That judicial hardening and blindness that has come upon Israel, Paul understands it's not wholesale. And he looks at himself back in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11. He says, I'm an example that it isn't wholesale. That God is still yet bringing forth a remnant from the covenant people of Abraham. And it's a marvelous thing to consider that God still looks upon them in remembrance of His promise to Abraham. But that judicial hardening and blindness is not only not wholesale, it is temporary. 
until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And as the gospel reaches to the ends of the earth, then all Israel will be saved. That's a promise. Now, I, I want to reflect upon that phrase first of all and understand what is meant in verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved. Uh, there are three words in that phrase that needs to be unpacked and understood. And the first is that word all. I mean, we get very narrow-minded when we see certain words and, and don't understand in context of other words. When we read that word all, uh, we jump to what we think it means. And it doesn't necessarily flow from the context. It's the same as that word world, that God so loved the world. What is meant by that word world? And again, in context and understanding uh, of both the verse and the verses around it and the, the book that you find it in, you understand, uh, just borrowing that about the word world, that it can mean the earth itself. It can also mean the whole of humanity, but it can also mean a system of enmity and hatred that exists against God Himself. And and when you when you understand that and you look at the context of the verses that follow John three sixteen, you see that's what he means. The, the reason that, the, the, that, that sinners do not want to come into the light and glory of Christ is because they are evil and their deeds are evil. And they don't want to come to that place where they see the reality of their evil and hatred against God. And that's the context of that word. World. God so loved this world that is evil and hates Him. He sent His Son. The same comes with this word all. When we hear all, does that mean every single person? (laughs) And the answer is no. (laughs) We know that, especially here when He says all Israel will be saved, is He meaning every single Jewish person that was, is, and ever will be? (laughs) Well, we know that it doesn't mean that. Judas Iscariot. <laughs> he was a son of perdition. Not a son of God. Not one elected to eternal life. So right there we understand that word all doesn't mean every single Jewish person. All Israel need not mean every single person but like the phrase that precedes it. In verse 25, again, we have verses numbered that sort of destroy the flow and separate what is being said. But what did he say at the end of verse 25? Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. 
And in like context, it means all of Israel who have been predestined unto eternal life. The fullness of the Jewish people. The whole of Israel, in that sense, will be saved. That's what that word all means. Now we come to another difficult word in this phrase, Israel. Does that mean Jewish people? Or does that mean the church, collective of all people? And again, there's debate on this within theological circles and in the history of the church. John Calvin, borrowing from Galatians 6 verse 16, saw this this word Israel to mean the church in its entirety. Because in Galatians 6.16, Paul speaks about the Israel of God pertaining to Jew and Gentile alike. And so he extends this word Israel to simply include that broad spectrum of all the elect people of God. And it's not often, but I disagree with him. (laughs) Because all through the context of chapter 9, 10, and 11... What does Israel mean? And Paul has been using it all along to reference his countrymen, his brothers, Israel, the children of Abraham. Very specific in that sense. You go back to chapter 3 of, uh, sorry, chapter, verse 3 of chapter 9. And he begins, I wish I could be accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israel, Israelites, to whom the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. He's talking about Jewish people. I'm going somewhere with this and I hope you're, you're following along, but I want you to understand that, that he's using this word, this word Israel to consistently speak of the Jewish people. And that's where another theologian, John Murray, stated that it is exegetically impossible to give to Israel any other denotation than that which has been given throughout this chapter. He's not changing his meaning. He even, before this, references the Gentiles. He sees these two people groups. God is doing a work among the Gentiles. He's going to do a work among Israel. All Israel shall be saved. And that last word, saved, is the other one that we want to understand. See. Interesting thing about that word, it is a verb, it's in the passive indicative. Which means, it's not something they are able to do themselves, but something that is going to be done for them, by God. And it's noting that God is going to bestow upon them the grace of salvation. And it comes to, to understanding this. How, 
How will Israel be saved? He comes on in verse 26 to make it clear. Israel will be saved when the Deliverer comes out of Zion. When He, the Messiah, comes and turns away ungodliness from Jacob. This is My covenant with them when I take away their sins. Some of you may not be aware of uh, a bit more modern ideas on how uh, Jews are saved versus Gentiles and uh, the whole matter of the new perspective uh, on Paul. Uh, writers have posited that Israel is going to be delivered uh, by their faithfulness to the Abrahamic covenant that was established in Genesis 12 and onward and unfolded throughout Genesis to Deuteronomy. But Paul says no. That Israel will be brought to that place by God's grace where they will understand. They will know who Christ is. They will comprehend that work that He accomplished on the cross to provide that atonement for their sins. They will comprehend how His resurrection from the dead has sealed unto them the promises of salvation, the promises of forgiveness of sin, the promises of eternal life. That, that how the Gentile is saved is how Israel will be saved. It's not a different plan. And he's emphasizing that here because he knows his countrymen are bound in that legalism of what must I do to be saved? And it's my self-righteous works in accordance with God's law that He has argued against all throughout this, this letter up to here and now. Israel has chosen a different way to seek reconciliation with God. They have rejected Christ and sought out their own obedience and their own righteousness as that which will be sufficient for them before God. And Paul has destroyed that understanding of legalism and showing how insufficient any man's righteousness is to deal with the sin and sinfulness in their life before God. And Israel has been bound in stubborn unbelief, thinking that because God has covenanted in Abraham, they have nothing to worry about. And in that unbelief, God has handed them over to blindness. But He is going to do a work of grace upon them. Why? Because He promised. He promised Abraham. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The gospel will go out to the nations of this world and bring in a people to the kingdom of God. But He also promised, I will be God to you and to your descendants. I will save Jacob it's a marvelous thought. I know you've heard this a hundred times, but congregation, hear it again. Why is it so precious to hear that name, Jacob? Jacob, I have loved. Jacob, I have loved. God has not cast off His promise. 
I mean, when you look, and for 2,000 years it looks like, yes, God has cast it off. What, what does Scripture tell us about time with God? One day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like one day. He will see that all of the elect in Abraham will be saved. And they will be saved just as we are saved. Isn't that what Peter said uh, in Acts 15 when, when they were dealing with this very issue? How is it that the Gentiles don't have to follow the rigors of the law? The rigors of the temple and the ceremonial sacrifices and the rigors of, of the feast days and the rigors of all those various Sabbaths that were established for us and the rigors of circumcision. How is it that they can be saved without all of that? And Peter is the one who stands up and says to his Jewish brethren, you've got it wrong if you're thinking that way. Listen to what he says in Acts 15.11. We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we Jews shall be saved in the same manner as they. (laughs) You need to cast off those types and shadows that were purposed to show you the glorious work of Jesus Christ. And you need to embrace Christ and believe in Him for your salvation. Just as the Gentiles are doing. Do you know how hard it is for a legalist to cast off their self-righteous attitudes? Do you know how hard it is for us as Christians to stop looking at what we do as something that earns and merits God's favor and grace and to trust in God alone, to believe in Christ alone and to understand that He only has, and praise the Lord, He only provides what we need for the forgiveness of all our sins through His death and resurrection. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And so shall Israel be saved. All of Israel. Because Paul's already said that back in chapter 10. Concerning even Israel... Whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord overall is rich to all who call upon Him. Don't stifle His grace and think that someone is outside of God's ability to save. Don't. Not even... 2,000 years of stubborn, stiff-necked Jewish unbelief. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's God's promise. And I say, say to you, not only do you believe this for yourself, have you come to this place in your life where it is Christ alone that you are resting in? Do you look at yourself and all that you've done in your life as a Christian or as, as one who's been part of a covenant home and, 
and see that as somehow gaining merit and favor before God? Parents, you know, these words can encourage us. As as they're spoken about Israel, they can encourage us again about our straying, wandering children that we see so bound in their sin and so stubbornly unbelieving at this time. We we have that struggle, don't we? We look at them and we just think, well, no, they've rejected God and Christ and there's just no hope for them. It's hard. And it's hard when it hasn't been just one or two years. But it's more one, two, three decades. And we just don't see anything. No light. You know, as long as they're living... What do you hope in? It's the grace of God who has covenanted. I will be God to you and to your children. Do you love me? What does he say in relation of that in the second commandment? I'm rehearsing this because we need to hear this again and again when we look at our straying children. Yes, God's judgment is upon our children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate Him. Do you hate God? I hope you're sitting there saying, no, I don't. I love Him. I have failed Him. I have failed my children. I mean, I can't lay, you know, simply lay all the blame that their heart hasn't been changed, so it's not my fault. We as parents understand we failed in raising our children in more ways than we realize. We don't want to be conceited in thinking because we, we feel we've done everything right. That's why they're walking with the Lord either. It's grace and grace alone. And as long as they're living, hope in the Lord. If you love me, I will be faithful with my mercy to what? To thousands. Do you see it again? Three and four generations to thousands. Where sin abounds. Grace much more. That's the greatest principle of His grace. And that's what you see Paul setting forth his confidence in this. And it brings, he brings it out in, in verses 28 to 32. Paul is confident that the present reality of unbelieving Israel aside, he is confident God has not rejected his people. Has God cast away his people? Verse 1. Certainly not. <laughs> Certainly not. Has God allowed Israel to stumble and so fall that they are beyond recovery? Chapter 11, verse 11. What's his response? Certainly not. Think about that with your children. Have they fallen into such sin that they are beyond God's ability to save? God forbid you have such thoughts. Because God saved you. (laughs) That's the reality. And why Paul has such confidence, he tells us there about this. He says, concerning the gospel, yes, verse 28, they're enemies. Concerning the election, 
They are beloved for the sake of the fathers. God promised Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, I will be God to you and to your descendants. And any time he made that promise, what is the adjective or adverb that he he added to that word covenant? This is my everlasting covenant. We know not all Israel is saved, every single person. A generation of Israel died in the desert for their unbelief. The next generation received the blessing of the land. We don't understand the mystery of God's electing grace from who is elect. But we understand His promise. And what does He say about the gift and the calling of God? What does He say about God's electing grace? It's irrevocable. That's why He has confidence In a humbling, oppositional way, Israel is both an enemy and yet beloved. Can you fathom that? (laughs) We're not sufficient for these things. But in relation to the gospel, the Jews have both opposed the gospel of Jesus Christ and tried to prevent even the Gentiles from hearing it. You can read of that in Acts 13 to 28. In relation to the gospel, yes, they stood opposed to it. They showed themselves enemies of God. They even went and followed Paul into other cities to try and keep the Gentiles from hearing it. Did they succeed? No. Why? Because God's authority would not allow His electing graces to be revoked. And in relation to the covenant of grace, God has His elect in Israel, the chosen people of God through whom Christ was promised and through whom Christ came. Beloved in Abraham, beloved in David. Isn't that amazing? That's how the New Testament begins. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. God was remembering His covenant. And because God is faithful, His gifts and calling will not be revoked. He will not regret the covenant He made with Abraham. Hallelujah! We're included in that covenant. We are the families of the earth who have been brought in because God's calling is irrevocable. But even more, Paul says it's not just that his electing grace is irrevocable. What does he say in verses 30 and 32? It's also because God's mercy is unfailing. That's the great thing about his grace. That his mercy is unfailing. You know, you read verses 30 to 32, and it just seems so counterproductive and counterintuitive to our understanding. God commits Israel to disobedience so that He can have mercy on them? (laughs) Does that seem a logical way to work? The Gospel? And yet, it's to uphold 
this most significant principle of his grace. That where sin abounds, grace does much more. The just judgments of God are only and can only be satisfied in Christ Jesus. And when you, without any merit of your own, turn to Christ, whether you are Jew or Gentile, you come to God through Christ, you'll find that His mercy is more than all your sins. Isn't that amazing? And that's what God is saying. You know, you could look at it this way. That for many more millennia, God had committed the Gentiles to disobedience. So that one day he could have mercy upon them. That's what he's doing with Israel. And when we look at that, we are encouraged. Because he's a God who delights in mercy. And even today. He wants His mercy to prevail. That's why He sent Christ. God committed them all to disobedience. Verse 32, why? That He might have mercy on them. To show that His grace is indeed greater than all our sin. Praise God. I hope you know that truth in your own soul. Let us pray.